0: Thanks for allowing me the pleasure of speaking with you today. Um, one day, I was making some copies, as one uh, might do at the beginning of the day. And I was at the coffee machine uh, running copies of a great article by Thomas Jefferson that I was excited to read in my class. And my principal happened to walk in uh, to the copy room, saw what I was making copies of, and said, uh, Tyler, you, you, can't, you can't put that out. You, you can't give those out to kids in your class. Why not? This is a fantastic article that I found. It talks about all these things I want to talk about. It links to social studies. We're cross-curriculating here. This is a good thing to do. And he goes, I understand that. It probably is a really good article. But right there on the bottom of the article, it says common core state standards, exemplar text. Now, I taught in Houston, Texas for five years. And Texas is kind of weird about some things. He goes, if you send that home, I will get call after call from parents tonight about why we're reading the text that comes from the Common Core State Standards. Now fortunately, that was several years ago, we have moved on to a lot more important things to disagree about. Um, So I'm very thankful for that. But when Common Core was first starting, it really did ruffle a lot of feathers. And if you were teaching during that time, it was a little difficult to navigate. What do these mean? How do we explain them to parents? How are we using them in the classroom? And is Satan really using them to twist the minds of our children? And uh, thankfully, we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit. And now they're just sort of oh-hum, we're we're a little bit more used to them. But they are part of what we do all the time now. Um, They have become a little bit more routine, and they are part of what we do. What I would like to uh, discuss with you guys today is uh, kind of what Common Core has done in terms of the language arts classroom specifically. But I think it can be applied to a variety of disciplines. So whether you're a a language arts teacher or a different content area teacher, we're all reading different texts within our classrooms. And so what I hope to do today is to give you some tools and strategies that you can use next week. Kudos to you for sticking around on Friday, the last session. Um, If I were here, I would want something that I can take home and put into my classroom next week. And that's what I'm hoping to give you guys today. So um, let's start by talking a little bit about the Common Core. Um, This is my sort of viewpoint of what they have done to our education system. Um, The good, the bad, and the ugly is usually an essay written by one of my eighth graders. Um, But there are some good things that the Common Core State Standards have done. One thing, and sort of their overall purpose, was to give the country a unified set of standards. And um, I think they've done that. Um, Almost all the states, I think it's up to 42 now, um, have implemented it. And so um, uh, most of our schools are probably using them in some way, shape, or form. So they've done a good job of doing that. They've given us a clear progression of what a child should know after each grade level. Um, That's very, very helpful. Um, to know sort of where should we be at the end of 6th grade, at the end of 8th grade, um, and so on. They've also uh, taken the, uh, now this could be a good or a bad, depending on how you look at it, but they've taken um, our content areas, this wide breadth of information and knowledge, and they've synthesized them into very manageable key skills that can be, that can be um, um, sought after to meet. So it has accomplished some good things. On the other hand, One of the things that's most frustrating for me about the Common Core is I feel like they reduce what we do to a set of bullet points. You've got to do this, 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 and this. And I like checklists. I'm a big checklist guy. I like getting them done. But I don't love the idea that my profession is boiled down to a checklist. By the end of eighth grade year, they want to do this, 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 and this. That's fine, but everybody in this room knows what we do is a lot more than a checklist full of things to to accomplish. Big thing, key word, you see it all the time, college and career readiness. There's nothing wrong with this. I think we are doing a great service by preparing our students for college and career. But if that becomes the, uh, the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do, we are missing a lot about what we're trying to do as educators. And we are not doing everything we could to emphasize the personal and the spiritual growth that occurs within our classrooms. I think Common Core focuses a little bit too much on the college and career readiness aspect. The biggest, one of the biggest frustrations for me is trying to reconcile my curriculum. What do I teach? And how does it actually match up to these things that I'm supposed to be doing? Um, how do I sort of make decisions that those two things can intersect, and intersect really well? Um, so that's a, that's a challenge for, I think, a lot of people. And, and then I put in some areas, because I know this is not necessarily true across the board, but in Texas, especially where I was, the Common Core has uh, has sort of led us into this this environment of uh, high stakes, high performance testing. Uh, where how do we know if you're going to meet this checklist? Well, we're going to give you a test, and that's how that's how you're going to show us. And uh, that has there, there's some good things about that, but there's obvious drawbacks to that as well. Um, so Common Core is kind of where I wanted to start today because. No matter what you teach, no matter what school you're in, it's, it's a good starting point for all of us. We all have familiarity with it. But here's where I'd like to go with this stuff today. Session goals. There's there, I told you I'm a checklist guy, so here's your checklist. Okay. Um, there's three things I really want you to get out of this session. The first thing would be for us to think about what we are reading in our classrooms. And again, whether that's a language arts classroom, a science classroom, a social studies classroom, what text are you choosing to read and why are you choosing it? That's a huge, uh, a, a huge point of, uh, of sort of this idea of reintroducing rigorous literacy instruction back into the classroom. What are you actually choosing to read? So the biggest tool that I want to leave you with today is, uh, is this thing called a close read. Um, if you were an English major in, in college, then that should probably be pretty familiar to you. Um, But I want to walk you through what a close reading looks like in a classroom and and how we can get kids to do an effective close reading. And we're actually going to do one today. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Um, And then finally, the, the, the big takeaway from this is I want you to be able to, after we've done a close reading, say, okay, how can I take that back to my classroom? Introduce that into my curriculum. Take this text that we're maybe reading next week and think about how I want to implement that. And then I can even show my administrator that I'm meeting these standards when I do this. That's, that's my hope for you today um, as we get through this. Everything I'm talking about today comes from, uh, comes from this source. Um, it's called Reading Reconsider. Okay? Uh, it's a fantastic book that I would highly recommend. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to my principal and said, I have a, a desire to sort of get back to novel studies. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of an old school teacher, even though I'm not quite an old school teacher yet. I like pencil and paper. I like, I like good old books. And I said, uh, what we have is our curriculum. It, it, it's good. I, I can make it work. But I would love to reintroduce some, some more difficult texts, some classic novels. And he said, OK, that sounds great. He gave me this book, and, and he said, this is what I'd like you to sort of base that, uh, that, that new curriculum on, um, or that new part of the curriculum. So uh, this is the same guy that wrote Teach for America. Or Teach for America. Teach for uh, teach like a champion. A lot of Teach for America people use it. Um, I like Teach like a champion. There's some really good methods in there. I don't think it's the, it's the you know, absolute must for effective teaching. But I think there's a lot of really good strategies there. So same same group of authors wrote this book. Um, The authors address kind of the common core standards and sort of uh, four different areas that we can respond to those. Today, I'm going to talk about the first two of those four. So we're going to talk about what type of text we read, reading harder text, how to closely read those texts. If you guys like what you hear today, uh, next year, I might come back and I might do the, the numbers three and four. If you don't like it, then then that's okay. I'll stay home, okay? um, Not not a big problem. So we're going to cover these first two today, all right? Um, I'll tell you, just kind of give you a a roadmap of where we're going. I want to give you a little bit of the background information from the book, and hopefully I can get through that in about 10, 15 minutes because nobody wants to hear me talk for a whole hour. And then in the last 20, 30 minutes, I want want you guys helping me out. We're going to do a close reading of a passage. And I'm going to have you guys help me out quite a bit in how we do that. So reading harder texts. I'll get into some of the specifics of this. But uh, this quote from the, uh, from the book sort of wraps up nicely what the authors are trying to get us to do. Um, they say, with the criterion is solely accessibility and not greatness. So one of the things the Common Core Standards have done is, is the 10th the standard, if you're familiar with them, for literacy and, and non-fiction texts, as always, I don't know, I can't quote a word word, but basically students will be able to read on their own, you know, different challenging levels of text. We've put a lot of onus on teachers to empower students to choose text for themselves and to know how to choose text for themselves. That is a good thing. Um, but if student accessibility is our main criteria, I hope they like this. Why do you read this book? Well, I think kids will like it. I, I think we got to take a step back and re-examine is that our only reason why we're putting this text in front of kids? kid? So, when that is our sole criteria, the result is that students who start out as weak readers almost never study the same rigorous text that imply our highest expectations, and are almost never offered the opportunity to read and master what's truly considered great, and are rarely asked to push themselves and find that they are indeed capable of bringing great insight to even the most challenging situations. I think one of our temptations when we have a struggling reader is to, you know, if we empower them, you choose the text. They're all of a sudden going to become a good reader because they chose it. I don't really know if that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I think there's some good things about that, but I think what these authors are saying is, why shouldn't that same struggling reader be pushed to master a text like *Grapes of Wrath* and *To Kill a Mockingbird*? And they don't have to classics but a lot of them do happen to be um, kind of considered that Um, another thing that the authors really emphasize is uh, not relying too heavily on different metrics to choose your text so the metric I want to talk about is the Lexile system it's something that a lot of us are probably familiar with I'm going to put this on the screen and you can probably kind of figure out where I'm going with this pretty quickly Um, I kind of have two pairs of books here and uh, they are at very similar lexile levels. And so according to the lexile metric, uh, these books are all sort of uh, considered to be in the same vein in terms of their uh, in terms of their uh, vocabulary, their difficulty. And so the first two, the, the school story. Now I'm going to come out right now and say I, I've not read this book. okay? But I did read uh, the Amazon overview yesterday. <laughs> so I, I feel pretty equipped to talk about it. Um, The School Story and The Giver are both 760 Lexile levels. Um, If you have had experience with either of these two books, um, you know that one is a much better book to read with middle school students than the other. Um, And and it's The Giver. Um, So a little shout out to Lexi. She teaches the seventh grade. Um, Everything Lexi does in seventh grade makes me look better in eighth grade. Um, She does a phenomenal job. When when I get kids to come into the eighth grade, and they start, um, they start jumping at things they see because she goes through signpost teaching. She does a lot of signpost teaching. It makes my job so much easier because I don't have to go back and, and set that foundation. She's already done it for me. And one of the books that Lexi reads in seventh grade is The Giver So when I, as an eighth grade teacher, introduce another dystopian type of fiction with the same type of complexities, uh, they are already set up and equipped to to be able to tackle that difficult text, whereas the school story is a very, um, it's a very sort of uh, rudimentary type of story. Um, The plot line is very basic. There's not a lot of complexity in the narrator's voice, the point of view. Um, the, The plot line is one, it's very linear, it doesn't move around. Whereas The Giver, you have a lot more complexities in the way that the author is actually telling the story uh, from the different points of view. And when you expose a kid to that, they're going to be more set up for this. The other one that I, I chose because I actually taught both of these books in Houston in the 7th grade is The Outsiders versus The Lord of the Flies. This is another one where they are they are almost paired similar, 750 to 770. And if you've ever read either of these books, you know that these are not even in the same ballpark in terms of complexity. Okay? Um, the Outsiders is a fantastic book, Stay Gold Pony. Okay? But again, the level of the um, complexity of the language, the way the author tells the story, is completely different than the very weird syntax that you find in Lord of the Flies that is all over the place and that you feel like you have to have grown up in the 1800s to understand. Okay? <laughs> Both are great books. One is much more rigorous than the other. I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to get you to to sort of consider here. Um, Now, the authors do affirm very clearly that there is nothing wrong with students choosing what they read. There's nothing wrong with short stories, poetry, articles, nonfiction, background information, text. Those are all necessary in the classroom. But what they do emphasize is that the primary sort of bedrock of your curriculum should be Difficult, rigorous novels that take students a lot of effort to struggle through. Because that is where the true mastery of these skills that are laid out in the kind court, that's when that's actually going to happen. is when they are challenged and when they are pushed to struggle through some of these texts. And it's okay to have a good story and it's okay to choose a book for the sake of it being a really good story. But what these authors are trying to emphasize is that we need to think about the types of text that we, uh, that we read. Okay? So that's kind of the first point. Okay? Uh, reading more difficult text. In the book, it goes through a lot more details about sort of the criterion that they would use to sort of select a, a text for your classroom. Um, now, in a, in a language arts class, we are probably talking about a novel and a different content. I think that looks a lot like uh, using um, um, primary sources in a social studies text, uh, a social studies classroom. I think in a science, uh, it's looking at sort of uh, probably more uh, in-depth, rigorous, sort of modern peer reviewed type of articles as opposed to simply textbook learning. Um, I think that's the direction that they would probably send us in. So point number one, think about the types of texts that you want to read, okay? Point number two. How to read these texts closely, a close reading. So, I want to start with this definition up here. Um, This is their definition of close reading. I'm going to leave this up for a little bit in case you do want to take it, uh, you know, jot it down or take a picture. But close reading is the methodical breaking down of the language and the structure of a complex passage to establish and analyze its meaning. So, essentially, we're trying, to, we're trying to address the problem of a student saying, I just read this paragraph. I don't know what I just read. That's what this is addressing, okay? Teaching students to do it requires later reading. We're going to talk about that. And asking sequence text-dependent questions, and it should end whenever possible with them showing you that they can do it on their own by writing about it, okay? I will be up front and tell you, couple things. Number one, I am not a master of this, but I am getting better at it. Number two, it takes a lot of intentionality. You cannot just throw a book out there or you know we're going to read this passage today and wait. You have to have put a lot of effort beforehand into uh, determining where do I want these kids to end up with these questions that I'm going to ask. And I'll talk about how we do that here in a second. Okay? So um, the first thing I want to talk about is the layered reading. Okay? So when we ask a kid to do a close reading of a text, okay, we're going to read this passage, the first sort of element to that is a what's called a layered reading. And really, simply put, it's, it's re it's rereading. So it's reading a passage and reading it again multiple times to establish that meaning. There's a couple of different ways you can do this, and I'll talk about each one. There's three in total. So the first one is called the, uh, the uh, con- continuous or whatever. I don't know why they didn't just call it continuous. Um, I looked it up on dictionary.com and I, I played the audio thing and I still can't get it in my head, so I'm just going to call it a continuous read. A uh, little inside joke with my, with my wife and I, she was an English minor in college, and uh, every time we say something is applicable, she will say it's applicable and I will say it's applicable. And uh, we, we fought about this for a long time. And so one day we finally got on dictionary.com and I hit the little speaker because I really was excited to prove it wrong. I was a great boyfriend. And uh, so dictionary.com read it out and it said applicable. And I did. <clears throat> and then it said or applicable. <laughs> and then we got married. <laughs> so a continuous read, okay? Think of this as big picture reading. We're going to read this passage from start to start to end, and the idea is to read it with as few breaks as possible. We're not going to stop. We're not going to define things. We're not going to give background information. There will be a time for that. We are thinking big picture. We want you to see what the author's doing overall here. What is the style that they're writing in? What is the sort of uh, skill that we want them to see big picture-wise over a long period of uninterrupted time? Okay. That's usually, let me back up real quick. Uh, that's usually done at the beginning. It can be, however, a great way to end a close reading because it's a great way to sort of wrap up and sort of show the kids, hey, we were in the weeds. Now we're going to take a step back and look at the big picture. So you can use this at the start or the end of a close reading. So the next style of a, close, of a later reading would be then a line by line. And I do this one quite a bit. In fact, this is probably what I do most often. A lot of times, I will introduce the passage, we'll read it without interruption, and then we will go back through and I will have students read one line at a time, and this is where I start doing a lot of my questions. Okay? Um, we're going to do both of these today. Actually, we're going to do all three. Okay? Uh, we're going to do this with a passage where we do all three types of layered reading. The final type is what's called a leapfrog reading. So, a line by line is, is uh, uh, very much chronological. We're going to start to finish, line by line, stop. What can we learn? All this sort of stuff. A leapfrog read says, I really want students to figure out how the author is using symbolism with this object throughout the entire passage. And so we're not going to read every time, but every time that the red balloon is talked about, we're going to go there. And we're going we're, we're to see what the author is doing with that particular thing. And you follow one thing throughout a passage uh, wherever it shows up. Language arts, it's very easy to do that, I think for other content areas, right? If you are trying to, uh, with social studies passage, uh, if you're writing, if you're, if you're reading a text um, that is trying to convince colonists to uh, you know break, break away from Great Britain, and one of the grievances is the whole taxation thing. Your close reading might look a lot like, we're, we are only gonna hold in on lines that talk about taxation and nothing else. That might be what a big frog would look like. So these are the three types of layered reading that you can kind of use to approach uh, a, a different text. So um, after you've sort of uh, uh, read these things multiple times, the next step, and this is the hardest step, is figuring out what do I want to ask? What do I want these kids to get out of this? Pe- are, are we just reading it to reread it so we get it? Or do I want the kids to get something out of this? And hopefully we do. So asking questions, let me say up front, the book in, in, the, in the close reading chapter it probably gives about 20 different types of questions, and, and, and I didn't really feel like putting all 20 types up here. What I will say is if you read through those types of questions, they there, there are questions that you already probably ask anyway. They just give them names. Okay? So you already do a lot of these questions. They just specify what it is that you are actually asking for. So. Um, there are various forms of text-dependent questions that will lead to different outcomes. That's what the chapter in the book talks about. So if you want to take the kids this direction, you would ask this type of question. If you want to take the kids this direction, you would ask these types of, uh, of questions to do that, okay? So here's what we want to do. What do we want our students to accomplish? What do we want them to, to take from this close reading? And then what questions can I ask them that would lead them to that outcome, okay? Alright, I'm going to put up something kind of scary. This is Common Core State Standard Reading Literacy, 8th Grade Standard Number 4. Okay? Whoever wrote these needs to be hitting the kneecaps with a baseball bat because they just they don't make any sense. You give them to a parent, they don't make sense. Even to most teachers, they think, how in the world am I supposed to teach that? Determine the meaning of words and phrases as they are used in a text, including figurative and connotative meanings. Analyze the impact of specific word choices on meanings and tone. Include analogies or allusions to other texts. Thanks, Calvin I'll get right after that. Okay? Um, our job is to try to figure out. My job is I'm, I'm supposed to be able to get an eighth grader to do that. So my close reading is going to be my first step in attempting to meet that standard. And a little side note, and you guys know this. I'm not going to do this in one close reading. I'm going to do this in dozens of close readings throughout the school year. So that by the end, they can take the text without me asking the questions. And they can write a response to it where they are doing all the questioning themselves. And that's how I know they have met that standard. And that's what I can hang my hat at the end of the year. All right. So how do we take a messed up standard like that? and turn it into something that can be useful in the classroom. Okay? So number one, let me go back. Number one, there's a lot of stuff in here. The book that I'm reading in my unit right now, it has a lot of stuff about tone. Okay? So I'm going to hone in on this specific part of the standard and how words have an impact on the tone of the text. I'm going to forget everything else, and I'm going to focus just on that part. Out of that, I'm going to come up with this question. And this is the question that I would have on my board as a learning target. Student-friendly language. It's not that standard gibberish. It's when a kid comes in, what are we doing today, Mr. Bro? We're going to read this passage, and I'm going to show you how the setting totally changes how the story feels. OK, Okay. I can, I can handle that, hopefully, the kid would say. Or they would loan and would complain and put their head down on their desk. Now, before I jumped in the passage, the very first thing I would do is I'd say, kids, before we jump into this and we try to answer that question, I need to remind you a couple things. I need to remind you what setting is, and I'm going to remind you what tongue it is. And I would do maybe a five-minute recap of what these two things are. And I would say, remember in Mrs. Rhodes' class in seventh grade when he talked about these things? She did a great job, awesome. I don't have to teach them again. Good job. Okay? And so we would read, we would reintroduce these, get them fresh in their minds. I would kind of go over, if i have talked about these already, I would say, hey, remember when we read this and we talked about setting? We're going to look at that again here. Remember when we talked about tone, the short story? Okay, get that fresh in your head here. I always tell kids, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, okay? Because they can understand that because they've all heard that from their parents, okay? That's what tone is. Once I've established, you know what setting is, you know what tone is. Now we can close read. Now we can get into the text, and now we can actually determine Uh, How are we going to answer that question? All right, we're doing great on time. You guys ready? All right, just like being in an eighth grade class. All right, that's good. Glad to hear it. So this is the text. Um, I read Animal Farm in the winter, okay? So this is a passage from Animal Farm. It's toward the end of the book. And uh, all the animals are up on a hillside, and this is right, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but this is right after one of the massacres where the, uh, where the uh, pigs have a bunch of animals that are suspected of being traitors, they have them an executed. And the surviving animals go up on the hill and they just sort of have this reflective bowl, okay? And I told you we're going to do all three types of layered reasons. So We're going to read this passage three times, okay? The first time we're going to read it without any interruptions, we're going to get a feel for what's going on. We're going to especially notice the setting and we're going to try to see maybe how it does feel in terms of the tone. What is the author trying to do? Then we're going to read it line by line, and that's where you guys are going to help me out a lot. And then we're going to do a leapfrog uh, reading where we can focus on a couple of things. So, um, let's read it without stopping. Sometimes I would have kids do this, sometimes I would do this, okay? The animals huddled about the total, not speaking. The knoll where they were laying gave them a wide prospect across the countryside. Most of the animal farms within their view. The long pasture stretching down to the main road, the hayfield was spinning, the drinking pool, the plowed fields where the young wheat was thick and green, and the red roofs of the farm buildings with smoke curling from the chimneys. It was a clear spring evening. The grass and the bursting hedges were gilded by the level rays of the sun. Never had the farm, and with kind of a surprise they remembered that it was their own farm, every inch of it their own property, appeared to the animals so desirable a place. As Clover looked down the hillside, her eyes filled with tears. If she could have spoken her thoughts, it would have been to say that this was not what they had aimed at when they had set themselves years ago to work for the overthrow of the human race. Okay, this is our passage for today. We're going to close read it. Okay, So uh, this is where I need your guys' help, you got to become students for me here for a minute. Uh, it's Friday morning here in South Bend, Indiana, and you get a nice extended weekend. So let's get some excitement here, alright? So, first thing, somebody tell me where are we at in this passage, let's talk about the setting. Where are we? Just shout it out and you don't have to raise your hand. Top of the hill in the countryside, where are we looking? The farm. We're looking over the farm. Okay, We've got this beautiful farm that we're, that we're seeing it. That's our setting. Okay? We'll get to tone in a minute. Now that we sort of have this idea of our setting in our heads, I'd like to sort of figure out what is the author saying about this setting. Because they're not just looking at a farm, they're looking at a lot else. So let's take this line by line, and I want to look especially at the farm. Now, we're going to come back to the first line here in a minute. I want to start with the very second line. The knoll where they were lying gave them a wide prospect across the countryside. Who can tell me what a knoll is? What is a knoll? Go ahead and raise your hand for this one so we don't talk over each other. What's a knoll? It's the top of a hill. It's the top of a hill. And why do you think we all might have used the word knoll right there instead of hill or mountaintop? Any guesses? Thoughts? What's that? More friendly? It's a lot more friendly. What makes it a little bit more friendly than a hill or a mountain? Well, to me, a knoll is more like a gentle. Absolutely. When I hear knoll, I think of a gentle rolling hill as opposed to this big towering structure. So I think it's important that the author chose that word specifically. It also says that it gave them a wide prospect. Of the farm. Now that's an interesting word, prospect. You can draft a baseball player, and he can be a prospect, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Who can tell me sort of what the author means when they say they had a wide prospect of the farmland? What does that mean? Yeah. An like evaluation. An evaluation of the farm. So it's not just they're looking at it with their eyes. They're looking at it and reflecting on what they see. Excellent, excellent thought there. Okay, we can use that to go places. Okay. Side note, I'm going to take a time out from teaching. This is what makes this really hard. When you get the kid, now, that was a phenomenal answer, and that's what I would say. That's where I would want to go. But then you get the kids who raise their hand and say, uh, I don't know, they're prospecting for gold? And you're like, no, no. <laughs> that's not it. And you got to figure out a way to sort of nicely redirect so you don't hurt the kid's feeling. You want them to try. Of course but that wasn't it, okay? Big old swing and a miss right there. Um, and a lot of that has to do with your ability to build relationships with your kids to be able to gently read the right So, side note, time in, we're back to it. Okay, here we go. Most of animal farm was within their view. Okay, we are in 16.9 ratio. Okay, we get a widescreen view of the farm. Alright, I want to look at this right here. long pasture stretching down to the main road. The long pasture stretching down. Okay, long pasture. Uh, like say you had said something earlier about the knoll where it, 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 you said it made you feel gentle and it wasn't this towering thing. What does a long pasture do to add to that idea? Well, it's sprawling. Sprawling. So how does that add to the idea of uh, sort of a gentleness? Um, it, it stretches out. It
1: has... Um, the length and depth. Yeah, there's depth, there's length. There's something
0: comforting about seeing the end of the field, as opposed to these sections of the trees that cut it off, and rivers, and rocks, and things that make the landscape very, this is very gentle, very flowing. It says, uh, stretch down to the main road. Uh, uh, there's another word there. Um, I almost just gave it away. See, I'm, I'm not very good at this. Uh, there's another word there that adds to the idea of this sort of gentle approach to what they're doing, what they see. Stretching. It's the stretching. The long field, the long pasture is just there. It stretches down to the main road. It invites them to, to the farm. Your eye approaches the farm gently and, and as if it's being invited. It's not just boom, there's the farm. And there's a difference between those two things. Now, it says they saw that pasture, and then it says they saw the hayfield, the spinning, and the drinking pool. Now, no eighth grader knows what a spinning is. So I tell them, okay, a spinning is this nice little shaded area of wood. Okay? So we got a hay field a nice little shaded area, and a drinking pool. I don't think it's an accident that the author chose to say these three things about the fire. In fact, I know it's not an accident, because good authors don't do anything like an accident. So what is it about the hayfield, the shady area, and the drinking pool that make this area feel inviting? Survival.
1: Survival. Can
0: you unpack that a little bit more? What does that mean that it would give them survival? Food, water, and shelter. That's right, food, water, shelter. This is what I need to survive. Himself. And the author goes out of his way to show us, when the authors look, when the animals look at their farm, they see they're, they're safe because they have everything they need to be protected and to thrive and survive. It's not an accident that uh, the author shows those, those three things. The plowed fields where the young wheat was thick and green. Now at this point, the kids kind of have an idea of where we're going, and we're going to do this line by line. And you get some kids that are real antsy, they're like reading the next slide, like, I know what it means, I know what it means. I can talk about this. Okay? So that's where you gotta get that excitement and harness it and use it and say, okay, so we've got these plowed fields. It's not just a pasture, it's a plowed field. Why would the author have us in a situation where we are in a plowed field? Why not uh, why not a field that's already full? Or a field that's in the dead of winter? What is it about a plowed field? that adds to that that sense of gentleness and and invitation. There's hope for the future. Oh, well said. There's hope for the future. There's new growth. There's new birth. And we get to see a recreation of what is happening here. Uh, There's a hope for the future. And and that hope, that idea of hope, there are a few other words that the author uses in this passage to add to that idea of hope. Who can tell me one of the other words or phrases that is used to add to that idea of hope? Yes, sir. Uh, spring evening. Spring. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the clear spring evening. You're going ahead. Of and I was going to talk about that next. So then the author goes, and he, he actually, in case we were wondering, am I really right about that? Yes. Because it's springtime. And springtime is when new things are born and hope is reborn. But if we go back to the last line, there's a few other phrases and words that the author puts in there to sort of add to this idea of hope and renewal. Young, wheat, thick, and green. Young, wheat, thick, and green. Okay, this is, this is a hopeful springing up of new life, green excitement, thick and green, it's lush, there's a lot of hope here. Okay? Alright, if we were to keep going, the plow fields where the young meat was thick and green, and the red roofs of the farm buildings with the smoke curling from the chimneys. Okay? Now, time out okay? This is where as an English teacher, you gotta be a little intentional about what you think. Okay? One of my favorite memes is of an English classroom. And uh, they're reading this passage, and it says, uh, uh, a student is trying to impress his English teacher. And, and there's a passage that says, the blue curtains. And the student goes, well, I think the author, the, the curtains are blue to represent you know, the, the sadness and the depression that the character is, is experiencing right now, and they're on the other side of the window. And then it goes to the English teacher, and it's like, it was some inappropriate language. But it said, no, the curtains are just blue. <laughs> Not everything has to be something that is this big, profound. Is there a reason that the roofs of the farm buildings are red? Maybe. But here's the thing. I want to talk about tone and setting. And I don't necessarily see where the red roofs add to that conversation. So I'm not going to stop and spend time to to point those out. If a kid brings it up, that's awesome. And and, and Lexi's going to bring something up here with the red roofs. Well, I'm just thinking that the author's bringing in color to
1: the, the sensory images
0: take hold Mm. the
1: students get more
0: picture. Especially right after the line where we have the thick green grass. So there is some contrast there. Hold that in your back pocket because contrast is something that I want to talk about later on. Okay? Um, but there is something I do want to point out in this. And it has to do with what Matt said earlier. I want to talk about the smoke rising from the chimneys. So why does the smoke, and it says that it curls from the chimneys, what is going on okay. with that word choice? Why does the smoke curl out of the chimneys instead of pour out of the chimneys? Or puff out of the chimneys? Or st- uh, stream out of the chimneys? Why does it curl? Yeah? yeah comfortable. It's, a, it's a comfortable, gentle. Remember, what is sort of the big theme that we're talking about in this passage? Gentleness and something that invites you in. And a, a, a smoke stack that is pouring out smoke, that's not very inviting. In fact, that's pretty aggressive. Whereas a curling smoke, it makes me want to know what's for that. I want to go in and get warm and figure out what's going on in there. So that's exactly why the author probably chose to use that particular uh, word right there. Now, we already talked about the spring evening because this gentleman was just so on the ball that he came out with guns a blazing and he wanted to talk about the spring. So we can check that one off. The grass and the bursting hedges. Now at this point you'll start to get kids jumping out of their seats again because they'll see that word bursting. And that's that excitement. That's that new life coming up again. It says they were uh, the hedges were gilded by the level rays of the sun. Here's where we would need to stop. Eighth grade kid, what's gilded? So can anyone tell me what it means to be gilded? Mr. Brower, plated with a precious metal. Plated with a precious metal. Now, for all the eighth graders that think exactly like Mr. Brower, you say, yeah, that's great. Most of them are going to be like shiny. Yeah, and what I would do is I would say, yeah, you ever go over your grandparents' house and they have like an old Bible that they like it's their family Bible and they've had it forever, right? And it's sitting up there, and the, at the edge of the pages like shine because they like have gold wrapped right around. Those pages are gilded. They got a little shine to it. They got a little luster to it. And here we're looking at the farm. It's like the edges of those pages on your Bible. It's got a little shine to it. It's one of those moments. <laughs> Where the clouds open up and the sun comes down on the farm, and we gotta take a picture so we can make a postcard out of it. Okay, this is what the the author. That's exactly what the author's doing. He's stopping and he's taking a postcard picture here. Okay, it's awesome. Never had the farm, and with kind of a surprise, they remembered that it was their own farm every inch. I'm going to skip that mill part for now. Never had the farm appear to the animals so desirable a place. Now, at this point, especially if your class time is just sort of running away from you, you can kind of start to fill in the blanks for the kids and you can say, see, we can see this invitation, this gentleness, through the word desirable. Okay, they want to be here. Now, after that, we're done talking about the farm. So, what I would do here is I would say after we've really honed in on this farm, I want you guys to stop for three minutes and I'm gonna give you some time. I want you to, in your journals, I want you to write your impressions of the farm and whether or not you would wanna be in a place like this. And I'd give them three minutes of silent, uninterrupted time where they could write down their thoughts to this. I'm not going to make you do that. And then uh, we would come back together as a class, and I would say, "Hey, who can share with me some of the things they felt about the farm?" So I am going to make you do this part. Um, If you could wrap up the farm, if you were putting the farm on a brochure, how would you describe this scene of the farm? You can give me some words. You can give me some phrases. Yes. Idyllic. Idyllic. I put that in my notes. What? It's right there. How else? Utopian. Yes. Utopian. Anything else? Yeah. Inviting. Inviting. Idyllic, utopian, inviting. This is a great opportunity to hammer out some literary terms for your students so that they can start to use those on their own in the future. That's exactly how I uh, I would address the part. And this is where I would take those words and I would turn a 180-degree pivot and I would say, I totally agree, the farm is idyllic, it is utopian, it is beautiful, and yet they're all crying. So what in the world is going on here? How can we be in such a beautiful place and have so many terrible things going wrong? And this is where i want do to leapfrog, later reading. So we're going to read this again, but we're not going to read stuff about the farm. We're gonna read everything around the farm, which is at the top, and which is at the bottom. The animals huddled about clover not speaking. Now, let's see how our time is doing here. I don't want to take us too long. We've only got about 15 minutes. So, what we would do is very similar to what we just did with the line-by-line reading, but we would talk about why are they huddled around clover. I would actually go back to this gentleman's comment about being spring, and I would say, doesn't seem like it's the middle of winter. I don't think they're cold, what is going on here? If you've read Animal Farm, you know they're huddled around clover because they are terrified. Because of what they just saw. They just saw their own kind execute other animals on the farm. And they are shivering, they are shaking, they are scared, they are terrified.
1: Now, we get this long
0: description of the farm, and here's one of my favorite things the author does. And I'm a bit of a grammar nerd, so I get all excited about it and I say, there's a dash. There's a dash! Oh my goodness! And then I might even reread it for them and I'd say, never had the farm, and with kind of a surprise, and I would say, you notice how I went down a little bit and how I read that. I paused and I changed my level of tone so that it felt different, because it is different. Never had the farm, that's this beautiful farm. Never had the farm and oh yeah, by the way, it's theirs. They were kind of surprised. I would probably take some time to focus on that word surprise. This isn't a surprise birthday party. This is a bad surprise. Oh yeah, this is our part, every single inch of it. And then we need to finish with this bottom part. As Clover looked down the hillside, her eyes filled with tears. okay? And we would talk about why, and the author kind of gives us a little context as to why, if she could have spoken her thoughts, which is a great way to talk about the overall theme of the book, that if you can read and be educated, you can't be as manipula. if she could have spoken her thoughts, it would have been to say that this was not what they had aimed at when they set themselves years ago to work for the overthrow of the human Now, it's not what they had aimed at. If you remember a while ago, we had two goals for this close reading. And those two goals were to try to figure out how does the setting, how does the setting make this story feel different with the tongue? Lexi, like, earlier you had said something about contrast, and I told you to put that in that back pocket. The author does something here between these two things. How can we look at something so beautiful, this postcard image of a farm, and be so upset that we are shaking about what we've seen and we can't believe it? How can the author put these two things side by side next to each other? And this is where I would transition back to my question. And I would say, OK, how does the author's specific description of the setting impact how it feels? And I would probably give the kids a little bit of help. So I would say, um, first of all, when you write your reflection, can you tell me what the two tones are? And so they might say, well, the farm is idyllic, utopian, and, and, and uh, what was the other one? Peace, uh, peaceful and, and gentle. But the situation they find themselves in is terrible. It is terrorizing. It is traumatic. And I'm asking to identify those two tones. And then, this is where we get the whole run. Then I would tell them, now, Tell me what lines from that passage we just read, what lines make it feel that way? If you can pick one line to show that the farm is beautiful, give me that line. If you can pick one line to show me that the uh, situation is terrible, tell me that line, put them side by side, and explain how the author does those at the exact same time. And then, this isn't for the kids, but this is for me. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, this this was the question. I would tell the kids and explain then how they contrast. This is for me. I can go back to my poorly worded standard, and I can say, okay, a kid just wrote a paragraph and gave it to me, explaining how different words in that passage created this idyllic farm setting that was set up next to this horrible situation. They're not going to do it in one time, but after we do this a couple of times, I might be able to start to say confidently, My kids have achieved reading literacy standard 8.4, or at least get close to it, okay? So, um, and again, this would all be uh, silent writing type, where they would write in their journals and have that ability to reflect on this. A couple things here. This is just a few of my observations. I've started doing this. This is my second year doing this type of stuff, okay? Um, So, number one, you can't do this every day. You will burn your kids out. You will burn yourself out. It's, it's intense, okay? It's, it's hard. I do it once a week, okay? so Thursdays are a close reunion. So every Thursday, kids know we're going to look at a different passage and do this. Um, so I do think that they should be done regularly um, so that they can start to see a pattern. If you only do this once for animal Farm, they're not going to be able to see the big themes that show up time and time and time again. So you do want to do it multiple times. Um, I, I said this earlier, it can be very difficult not to supply the answers. You all were very willing and you were great. Sometimes a class isn't. And so you're sitting there being like, come on, what does the smoking, curly, you know, the curling, smoking, the chimney mean? And, and they, they won't tell you. And it can be very hard not to just say, okay, I'll tell you. Okay, give them time and space to be able to do that. And sometimes if they won't talk, I'll do the little, okay, turn and talk to a partner for 10 seconds and tell them what you think. And now that they've told somebody else, it might be more willing to tell me. Okay? Um, it takes a lot of work. I don't say that to be and in, 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 uh, to intimidate anybody, but it takes a lot of work. You got to know what the questions are before you read the passage. You got to know where you're taking it. Um, you can't wing it. Um, at least I should say you can't wing it. It's very effective. Um, and so you got to have these things sort of thought out ahead of time. You got to know where it is that you want to take it. Okay. Um, I will say. Over the course of just a year and then you know the start of the school year, I have been very pleased with the results, in the sense of I feel like last year I equipped my eighth graders more so than I had in the past to go to high school, to go to any English class in high school, to be given a novel, and to be able to say, I can analyze anything you give me. I might struggle, I might need some help, but I can analyze anything that you give me because it a lot last year. And so I have been very pleased with the results, and I did find that by the end of the school year last year, kids just knew. They knew where I was going, they knew what I wanted, and they were able to sort of kind of lead with me um, through the book, which was pretty cool. We do have a few minutes. Um, if there are any questions, we got about ten minutes. Not that we have to fill it all, but um, are there any questions about this book, the way that those close readings are done, the way we choose texts? Um, why the Yankees keep striking out against the Astros pitching. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I don't have that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I also teach uh, eighth grade, and I'm curious as to what novels you chose. Yeah. Um, I start the year with Johnny Tremaine, which is kind of goes back to those Lexile levels. That's like a fifth grade book. If you've read Johnny Tremaine, it's not written for fifth graders. And um, I choose that for that reason. I also choose it because in eighth grade, our social studies goes through that period of history. So it's actually fun. Our kids are right now working on a newspaper project where they're writing about why we should break away from Great Britain. And they're using uh, things in time to, to explain that story in their newspaper articles. So that's pretty cool. So we, we like to do that. We're big cross-curriculators where I come from. So um, In the winter, I do animal farms. So this is in January. And then a big section of the spring, we do The Hobbit. And then in the the month of May, we finish with uh, Gary Schmidt's Orbit and Jupiter. And so I've I've chosen those. You have historical fiction, you have dystopian, sort of a political commentary, you've got fantasy, and then you've got sort of a realistic teen love story type thing to end with. I always with that one because it's their favorite, so they they enjoy that one the most. yeah, that's kind of why I've chosen those, and, and uh, it could change down the line, but that's what I do right now. So I'm wondering, if, like, um, to worry your a
1: little bit, maybe more recent, do, you know, do, you know, do you know texts that are more recently written, I guess, that would, even if you don't teach them in like, a the class necessarily, that you can
0: say, like, for kids that you know want that, or like, do you, do you know, Are you talking in, in terms of, like, background content for to help us understand the book better? Or? Um, no, I mean, you
1: can just. Challenging because
0: mm-hmm. in the last four years. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, right? Because like I told you earlier, I'm an old school type of teacher. And that doesn't mean that there are great books written right now. And uh, I usually defer to my lovely co-workers over here. This is our librarian, as well as the uh, advanced ELA uh, teacher. And so she's somebody that I can kind of ask those questions to. And even if we don't read them in class, I can recommend them to a high-level reader to say, hey, like, if you really enjoyed what we did here, you got to check this out. And so um, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have people like that because I tell kids I'm, I'm not a great middle school language arts teacher in the sense that I don't read teen fiction. I, I, I can't stand it. <laughs> Joy reads everything that comes to the library. I want to read about IndyCar and economics. Why would you want to torture yourself by reading teen fiction? I don't understand. <laughs> so, so, that, and I tell kids up front, like I'm not your best resource, but next door there is somebody who will crush it for you. Yeah. Oh, good question. Yes, ma'am. Can you speak to what you
1: do and what background Yeah. Background so, done that- yeah.
0: So Thursdays are my close reading days. Wednesdays are my slow down and just read days. Tuesdays are my background day. So usually I will have either a nonfiction article. So for Animal Farm, we do a lot of background reading on Joseph Stalin and the Rise of the Communist Party. And uh, we we try to get the kids to form a revolution and revolt and things like that. We don't really, but uh, I taught Animal Farm in Houston. And uh, we had very, very, very strict lunch ladies. And I may have accidentally started an uprising against the lunch ladies. I got talking to, talk to you by the principal after that. So, um,
1: but yeah, so Tuesdays
0: are the days that I will ever use text uh, that might, it might point to a theme, it might give us background historical no- uh, knowledge. When we do um, Oregon and Jupiter, I did a lot of articles about what is true love and, and things like that. And uh, we read an articles about the foster care system because that's what the main character struggles through. Um, so that's, typically that's Tuesday. And then, we don't just read it. I do a lot of my nonfiction skills on, on those days. And then, when we do get to Thursday, it just, it just helps us to be able to call back and say, hey, look, we talked about this kind of thing Yeah. Yeah? Do you assume that
1: everybody's reading at the same pace? And what do you do with kids who just want to read the whole thing? And- yeah.
0: We do typically, uh, we, we do read a class together. Um, and there are kids that obviously read ahead. And there's plenty of kids that don't read at all. Because here's the thing, eighth graders are smart. And they, they figure out very quickly, if I just show up on Thursday and get involved in this close reading, and then I can knock out the quiz on Friday, I, I don't really actually have to read out of your Now, there's kind of two parts to me. Part of it says, well, you're missing out. And I, that's a poor decision on your part. And there's also part of me that says, if you're reading that level of intensity just once a week, that's still a win. <laughs> I
1: don't
0: love it, but it's still a win. So um, I usually let kids go ahead if they want, and I know that I know there's kids who don't read. I know that we go. I give them time to read. We read together, and then of course we do this on Thursday. So they they're not totally missing out on everything. Yes. So your week is you have an assigned reading for the week, and you are doing some things
1: throughout.
0: And a quiz on On Friday. Yep. Monday is always grammar. Tuesday is background. Wednesday is reading day. Thursday is close reading day. Friday is quiz, assessing all the skills that week. So the grammar focus, the, if there's a nonfiction focus, that, and whatever. So this, this would have been, uh, my quiz for this would be a quiz on the setting, and i would actually have a different passage in my quiz from Animal Farm with multiple choice questions where I'm essentially asking them to do the same thing, but on my own. So it's not based on the
1: reading they did it's just based on one new... Uh, uh, the passage
0: will be from the reading they did
1: Correct. So I'll say this week
0: we're reading chapters one and two. And that's and it. they didn't read it, but they still can do work on it. Right. So what I do to kind of, kind of balance that out is I typically have two or three questions on my quiz that are just digital And if they didn't, they won't get them and won't get a C. They might do not get the other stuff, which is really what they care about, but they'll get a C for the class. I think that's a good deal. <laughs> they have a good skill, they're great at flexing. And the kid who actually did do all the work probably gets an A. And I, I kind of like how that balances out. So, yes? So when do you sign, like you said, like Chapter 1
1: 2? Yeah. You sign that?
0: So they know about it on Monday. Okay. So they could technically start. Um, and then Wednesday is the day that we, I change every week. Sometimes we read the class, sometimes we read in small groups, sometimes we read in a circle, sometimes I read Sometimes I do popcorn reading, but that's the day where they are actually going to read in class. Everything else they have to do on their own outside class. Okay, so whatever you get to in that
1: Wednesday class. Yeah. And then the
0: rest. Of the they will be responsible for finishing the rest. And then, of course, you got to have school that is willing to supply a book for every kid. So, which I, I'm i thankful that I do. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Do you mind telling me some of the seventh gradiness that goes was the they get to the face Um, I can, but Lexi can. Um.
1: Well, the only novel that we do specifically full class is The Giver, and we do that at the end of the year. But early, at the beginning of the year, I work on um, author signposts, the notice and note signposts, and then we apply them along with all the literary elements, several literary elements, in um, book club unit and go specifically through those and then um, incorporate
0: them again when we do poetry and so we're looking at different types of texts and offers graphs throughout well. And those signposts are key in 7th grade because then they come to 8th grade. And this, what we did is essentially, you're noticing that I'm asking them to do the same thing, the language is a little different, but they are already very comfortable with doing that because they've done it in 7th grade on here. And 6th grade. So, and 6th grade, sorry Karen. <laughs> yeah. That's your first handle, good job. Any other questions? I don't want to keep you any longer than you need to be. Uh, Thank you all very much for attending.